In our text this morning, the Holy Spirit has very clear and a very direct word to us. Do not love the world. And I wonder if it's the Spirit himself who knows how easy it is for us to love the world. I wonder if John knows, as he writes this, how easy it is for us to love the world. And I wonder if we look honestly at ourselves, we will recognize that within us, how easy it is for us to love the world. I was reading a uh, writer this week who was telling a story about being online, looking at news articles, and he saw a title that said, Kardashian Feud Continues. And he said he thought his first thought was how ridiculous it is. Why do we care about these people and what they're up to? And his second thought was, that sounds interesting. I wonder what's going on. So he proceeds to open the article, to read the article. And as soon as he's done, he says, well, that was ridiculous. Who cares? I guess I do. And in that story, I think we recognize the kind of relationship we have with the world its values and its priorities on the one hand, we say it's silly, it's ridiculous. And then on the other hand, we find a part of ourselves wondering, but what's it really all about? See, to be human, to be made in the image of God means that we are people who love things. We love our husbands and our wives. We love our moms and our dads. We love our grandmas and our grandpas or whatever various names there are these days for those two people. We love pizza and we love ice cream. So we are a people who love all sorts of things and loving comes easy for us. God made us to love. But what happens when we begin to love the wrong things? See, the Holy Spirit, I think, is inviting us to ask ourselves this morning the question, do I love the world? I mean, I'm going to be loving something, but is there something in my heart that lo that's loving the wrong things? I start with the phrase, do not love the world, even though it's in the 15th verse, and we're supposed to be starting in verse 12. Because it's the first time in John's letter that he uses a verb that's in the command form. This is, this is something that John actually does more rarely than any other New Testament writer. He gives us very few commands, ten in all that we will find in 1 John. And so we pay attention to this command because it's almost as if John is highlighting it, and then underlining it, and then circling it, and then putting it in bold that this is of absolute importance to us. See, we began this section that we're still within, that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And John has said one of the characteristics of those who live in the light, formerly he said, is those who renounce sin. 
And then we come to find that those who live in the lights are those who are obedient to God, specifically obedient in the ways that they love their brethren. And now John will add to that another thing that is a sign that we live in the light. It's what we do with the world and our love for the world. But for some of us, when we see this command, do not love the world, it may seem awfully overwhelming. Perhaps overwhelming isn't even a strong enough word for you. You say it's impossible not to love the world. Where, where on earth would I get the resources to not love something as attractive as this world? And that's why we need to now go back to verses 12 through 14 because it is there that John addresses the resources. It is there that John prepares and equips the readers for this command. See, there's a lot of people who don't really know what to do with verses 12 through 14. You'll notice in your Bible it's kind of there in a poetry way. It's not written in a normal paragraph form. And, and it's almost, they, some people think this sounds like an introduction, but it's kind of awfully late for the introduction. The preacher's 10 minutes in his sermon say, oh, by the way, in case you don't know me, here's why I'm who I am and here's why I'm, I'm preaching. But what John is doing here is he is reminding the Christians of things that they already know, and he's preparing them for the things that he will tell them. And so, for example, we find in chapter 2, verse 12, your sins are forgiven on account of his name. Well, that's nothing new that John hasn't already said. He told us that if we confess our sins, who is faithful and he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins. See, John knows the importance of reminding us of truths that we already know. I mean, there's only so many things you can live, learn in the world, and then from there it's just an awful lot of repetition, isn't it? But I think we instinctively know how important it is that things that are important to us are repeated over and over again. There's a book out there called Four Men Only. And, and this is the intro to the second chapter it says why her i do will always mean do you and what to do about it in other words the advice to husbands is you can never say i love you too many times say well i already told her once maybe twice why on earth would i need to say it again and these authors are proposing that if you don't keep saying it it's possible that she might forget and so say it until you think you've said it too many times, and then say it three more times. And maybe that will be enough. Don't we realize sometimes we need to be told things we already know to be reminded and to be affirmed of those truths? And so that's what John will do in this section. He will tell them in these declarative statements, You know him who is from the beginning. You have conquered the evil one. You know the Father. You are strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And I don't assume that anybody there would say, huh, never knew that. Never heard that before. In fact, we've heard some of these things even in the very body of this letter to this point. If you've watched much in sports coaching, and I'll let you know right now, I know these are volleyball players, and I know my illustration is basketball, but I just couldn't find a good basketball coach picture, so please be patient with me. <laughs> if you watched a coach, this is 
the very kind of thing that a coach often does. Before the game, the coach has these words for the players, right? We're going to tell them what our strategy is. We're going we're to keep up the pace and the tempo because we're in better shape than these guys here. And so we're going to push the ball up the court, and we're going to move really, really quickly. And has any basketball player ever not heard that before? No, but they need to be reminded of that. And so the game goes on, and there's 10 minutes left, and what does the coach do? He calls a timeout. And what does he tell them in the timeout? He says, guys, we need to really push the pace of this game. We need to make sure that we, we keep moving the ball because we are faster and we are stronger and we are better trained than this team. And there's nobody there who's never heard it before, but sometimes we need to hear again the truths that we already know. And I think that's kind of what John's doing in verses 12 through 14. He's, he's saying, let's take a time out here for a minute. And the reason John takes a time out, I think, is for two elements or two aspects. The, the, the first is, remember, this is a congregation that is at the very least at a max tension point, and likely there's been some sort of split that has happened. Some, John will tell us, has gone out from us. And, and the characteristics of, remember those people last week who they, they say, I know him? And John will later say, how do you say you know him while you're hating your brother or sister? So what do you think is happening in conversations there? People calling you all sorts of names, saying all sorts of awful and terrible things about you. And you begin to wonder, is it true? And so John stops here to remind them, no, those things are not true. This is what is true about you. You do know the Father. Your sins have been forgiven. You are strong. And so that's the first part of the timeout is to just reaffirm them because I think they need to be reaffirmed. But the second thing is John's getting ready to give them his first command. And I think without laying this groundwork, if he says do not love the world without reminding them of who they are in Christ Jesus, of what God has already done in them, he's afraid they're going to just throw up their hands and say, well, that's impossible. There's no way I can do that. And so John is preparing them by reminding them of their identity. That as they move into this, that they should recognize that it is something they're able to do. That it is something they have the resource to do because of what God has already done. And what God has already accomplished in Christ Jesus. In many ways, I would summarize what John says here by Peter's words. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. I mean, what he is about to ask them to do is not beyond their capacity in Christ. But what do you suppose it means that we are not to love the world? If you're like me and grew up in church, you likely got mixed messages about this word, the world. My home congregation, we would stand and we would sing joyfully, this is my father's world. And I would look around at the adults and they would be smiling, and they would be happy, and they would be delighting in the world that God made. And then it wouldn't be for but a few verses later that we would stand up with deep conviction and sing, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And so how can we be so delighted, and then at the next moment, it's almost as if we're in jail, and if we could just get out of jail, things would be great. And then at the table, the man would read the scripture and he would say, For God so loved the world. And then the preacher would get up behind the pulpit and you know what he would say? Do not love the world. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm so confused. What am I supposed to do with the world? 
Now, fortunately, as time passes and we mature a little bit, we come to realize that clearly the context and what's being talked about in the context of world is different. So what is John saying here? Uh, John is not saying don't love things that are composed of matter. Don't love things that have any sort of physicality to it because he's already told us to love the brethren. And last I checked, each of you have some physicality to you. You have some matter to you. And so we're not saying just if something has physical uh, properties that we don't love them. And maybe some people say, well, we're not supposed to love people who are worldly. But when Jesus, when God talks about loving the world, he's not talking about God only loved a certain portion of the people of the world. All people are made in the image of God. So what does John mean when he tells us not to love the world? I think we get a hint of it in uh, chapter 5, verse 19, where John says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The, the world in this case is anything that is opposed to God. It's not talking about geography, it's not talking about place, but it's talking about anywhere, anything that is opposed to God's desire, God's will, and God's intention. So so this could be things like attitudes and values, it could be mindsets or cultures or ways of thinking. Anything that is opposed to God, we cannot and we must not love. And John's going to give us three reasons why we don't love the world, the first of which is that the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. You might wonder at first why we can't love two things at once. Aren't you kind of capable of that? I mean, imagine you have a kid, and now you're going to sit down and you're going to write that kid a new form letter. Luke and Katie just had a new baby, and so did they sit down and they say to Arlen, unfortunately... A new baby was born yesterday, and so we're going to take half of the love we have for you, and it's now going to be shared with someone else. Now, babies will feel like that's actually what happened. But as parents, we feel like we have the capacity to love more than one children. So, so why is John so protective about love? And I think that we have to recognize we're talking about two different levels or types of love here. The first is ultimate loves. Ultimate loves are those things that, that are about our dedication and our allegiance and our commitment. And the Bible claims that these ultimate loves, they will be exclusive. That, that these are loves that cannot um, be shared. But then there is a second kind of love that is kind of a, a because of love. It's a love that flows out of your ultimate love. And so, so we can love John and Steve and Sally and Susie and all of those people because it's flowing out of the ultimate love. But John or Steve or Susie or Sally themselves cannot be our ultimate love. And so as we look at the difference between love, what, what, God, what John is telling us is this ultimate love must be for God. And out of that can flow all sorts of multiplying and broad forms of love. But when it comes to our ultimate love, there is only one that we can love. So John kind of makes it seem like love is kind of like going for a hike and you hit a fork in the road and you have to decide whether to go to the left or the right. You cannot travel east and west at the same time. And John is saying that the love of God and the love of the world is like that. Choose one ultimate love and then things will flow or follow behind that. In the language of James 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
cannot love the world and claim to simultaneously love God. So, so why is love for the world incompatible with love for God? Because the desires that are associated with love for the world, they do not come from the Father. That, that there's no way to chase after or to pursue those desires and simultaneously be chasing after and pursuing your love of God. See, John will give us these um, three ways that the world pulls us away from the Father. And the first is the desire of the flesh. I mean, anything that pulls you in the opposite direction of God. This can be something that is sexual in nature, something that's wrong or inappropriate. This could be about anger. I really want to punch that guy, but God's calling me to forgive him. This could be about drunkenness. I really want that drink, but God's calling me to self-control. The desire of the flesh is this broad category that I think, in fact, actually encapsulates the next two. The next two, I think, are kind of like subpoints to it. And the next, then, is the desire of the eyes. See, John kind of shares this notion that the eyes can be kind of like doors. Whenever you leave the door open, you're just never sure what might wander in, what might find its way inside the door. And so the eye is one way that we allow the desires of the flesh into our lives. And so as we think about eyes as, as doors, the question is, what are we opening the doors to? What's coming in? Cars, movies, Videos, I mean, all of these sorts of things. And so I think John's admonition here is much like that old song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because the desire of the eyes can open the doors to things. And then there is this word that's translated um, very different ways, vainglory of life, the boasting of what he has and does, what's literally the arrogance of life. And I think that what we're getting at here is this notion of if, if you were to brag to someone about something that you've, you, it's your best accomplishment. It's, you, you want to impress someone and so you're going to say, I did or I have. That's the very thing that John's talking about here. Whatever you point to the source of the life is your life's pride. And, and all of these things, again, they're not going to draw us towards the love of God. But they're going to draw us away from it. So the second reason why John tells us not to love the world is that the world and its desires are passing away. Did you know that this is the time of year when the United States Postal Service hires temporary employees? You go down to the post office, get, I don't know, 12 15 $17 an hour. Between now and the end of January, they will hire you. But imagine you went down to the United States Postal Service and you got a job, but you didn't know it was temporary. And now you go and get a mortgage based on that income. And you go and you get a car loan based on that income. And January 31st rolls around and you've not got a job because you had a temporary job. I mean, how, how frustrating would that be to not know that this was temporary? And so John is telling us, if you love the world, what you need to know about the world in its ways is it's temporary. There will be a day when it comes to pass that that is no longer there. God's not trying to be a, a, a killjoy. God's not trying to say, hmm, how do I find the things that would make people most miserable and then I'm going to tell them not to do that. God's intention is the exact opposite. God knows our desires are eternal, and so he wants us to find things that satisfy those desires into eternity. And the world is passing away. And so there's no point in falling in love with the world. 
Things that pass away are not bad. Temporary jobs are not bad. As long as we remember what? They're passing away. And they are temporary. And the third reason John gives is that those who do the will of God will live or abide forever. Most older translations prefer the word abide, which is probably the most accurate translation rather than living. I think abide is a better word to keep here. If you were to look at John and either look at the word remain or abide, it's a kind of a key word for John. I mean, ultimately, what John wants is, is, yes, for us to abide with God forever means we have to live forever. But the goal is not the living forever. The goal is the abiding forever. We will be with God. See, if God is eternal and our salvation is eternal, then how long can our abiding with Him last? It can last forever. Eternal life with God forever. There's this kind of sad plot line in the Marvel movies about Captain America. Captain America had a girlfriend and somehow he got frozen in ice and then decades later he gets woken up and guess what happened to that girl the whole time he was frozen in ice? She grew up. And now all of a sudden there's this huge age differential and there's no more loving. Like, why would you want to love something if you're going to be living forever that isn't going to be living forever? What joy, what satisfaction would it be to find out that that which you love the most is gone or passed away? But if it is God that we love the most, God will never pass away. God will always be present. And so what John is doing here is he is not simply trying to restrict us from something, but he's trying to invite us into something much better. John's not simply saying, do not love the world because I told you so. He's saying, do not love the world because life is better when you don't love the world. And so the Holy Spirit invites us to pull away from the world. And this is not an impossible standard that we're being called to because we have, in fact, known him from the beginning. We have conquered the evil one. We know the Father. We are strong. We have the Word of God abiding in us, and we have overcome the evil one. I mean, perhaps the best answer to the question, why shouldn't we love the world, is because God's love is better and richer and longer and more complete. When it comes to love, I think that we can relate to this story. It takes place a long time ago, 354 a lady named Monica had a son. She was a committed Christian and wished nothing less than that all of her children would become Christians. And the son who was born in that same year, in 354, named Augustine, grew up to live a life in rebellion to God. Now, this was his mom's nickname for him, the son of many tears. She saw his womanizing ways. She saw his pursuit of drunkenness and she, she wept over him because he was loving the world. And she knew that that would not bring him the richness in life that she desired for, his, for her son. And eventually it seems as though those prayers did invade his heart. Uh, he became more aware of what God was calling him to, what God was asking him for. And so he began praying. And they were honest prayers. 
probably more honest than we often pray. Here's what he said. When I felt drawn to God, here's what I started to pray. God, grant me chastity and restraint, but not yet. I mean, why pray that prayer? Because the love of the world still seemed to him something valuable, but God also was beginning to seem something valuable. And his heart was torn between these two loves. And so he goes on to say, I was afraid that you would hear me too soon and soon deliver me from the disease of lust, which I desired to have satisfied rather than extinguished. Do you see the tension here? Beginning to be aware of God's love and God's work in his life, but also feeling his heart drawn to things. Feeling like that to follow God fully and completely would in fact be giving up good things, the things that he loved. But coming more and more to recognize God's love in his life. One afternoon he says that he was sitting in the garden and there were some children singing a song below. And the song went like this. Take up and read. Take up and read. So he grabbed his New Testament and he opened to the book of Romans. And it was there in Romans that he encountered the powerful love of God. That he encountered the gospel. And that he gave his heart fully to God. It's the same Augustine who would later write, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. See, Augustine's writing is not just theory for him. It's his life story. His feeling the tension between love of the world and love of God. And ultimately he chose love of God and he felt like his life was better than it had ever been. And so I guess I want to invite those of you who find your hearts to be restless this morning to respond. To explore how compelling and rich and rewarding and satisfying is the love of God. To realize the emptiness in the love of the world. It will never satisfy that for which we hunger. I think the Holy Spirit is inviting us not just to stop loving the world, but to start loving God more deeply. So if you would like to respond, in just a moment we're going to be singing a song, and there will be some folks in the back. Um, We're happy to pray with you. Talk about what loving God looks like in your life, what pursuing Him fully looks like. What what, what baptism is all about, what role that plays in our giving ourselves fully to God. But I want to finish with this word of blessing, that the Lord might bless you and keep you. That the Lord, Lord might make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That he would turn his face towards you and give you peace. And for those of us who are Christians, we have this promise and this assurance, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the love of God, and that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all. If you want to respond in any way, I invite you to do that while together we stand and sing this next song.